Hi, I'm Ann Delisi. Welcome to episode 27 of Essential Conversations. You're about to hear my conversation with Jeff Mills, known widely for working at the forefront of electronic music for over 30 years. But he continues to be an innovator, venturing into classical and jazz and composing soundtrack music for silent films. In this two-part interview, he talks about the early days of the underground resistance and the beginnings of techno music in Detroit. And years later, the challenges of marrying techno and classical music. But we started with him talking about being a DJ and working in Detroit radio. That was a time when DJs were taught by someone else. Uh, there were older DJs in, in the city that had kind of like interns. And uh, the things that were taught was basically how to program music, how to take a five-hour DJ set and um, uh, learn how to watch the audience to know when, you know, when to do what. So play four faster records and then a slower records because they had to go to the bar or to the restroom. Um, you know, th- things like as you get closer to 2 a.m., which is the time <laughs> mostly close, that's the time when you need to play more slow records because guys need to ask the girl for their <laughs> phone number. So you have to make, you have to work on that on that to, to happen. Um, yeah, I mean, many many different. DJ etiquette type of aspects, like never drink in front of your audience, never uh, turn your back to them, speak to them at the beginning of the night, introduce yourself, and then also, once again, at the end. It was quite academic uh, mm-hmm. back in the in the early 80s. And so I was a, an apprentice, and uh, we'd go around to parties, and he would teach me how to do this and how to do that, and to the point that I could do it, you know, uh, myself. And, yeah, and then, and then it was time to leave, you know, so then... <laughs> What did you like being on the radio? Yeah, I did. Uh, I mean, there were. I mean, I I was on the radio for for a long time. Um, And uh, but you were on night after night after night, so you had to be on every single night. Yes, yes, six nights uh, Mm -hmm. a week. And um, when I started, I was on call, so meaning that whenever the programming director wanted to have a mix, at any time, he just kind of you know, pressed a button, and I was in the studio, kind of similar to this, a very small one, and I and I would have to mix something just out of the blue, and and that was the you know that's how I started, and um, uh, and it was so much so that I I, I never went home, I slept in the in the uh, in the, you know at the station, and then I built myself kind of a mock up of that studio in my apartment, so I could do production there, and on average to make a show or to at least kind of like record for a show. It took about six to seven hours, uh, which so I would start at around 10 o'clock and then and then uh, in around, you know, six or six or seven, and then the show would air at 10, and then another another one at 12. That is so crazy. And, uh, it, was, it was, yeah, it, it, it took all my time. And um, I never really did anything else uh, uh, for the first few years. You must look back in that and ask yourself how you ever managed it. Uh, well, I was young, yeah. and um, <laughs> yeah, I had lots of lots of energy, and um, and and they you know they paid me money, uh, you know, <laughs> for, for a young person it was quite quite well. They they gave me like a budget of seven hundred dollars a week, uh, full access to the uh, station's library, and I could use the production library as well, so all the sound effects. Oh right. And they and they gave me a budget to go out and buy new music every every week. So I would go as far as Toronto to Chicago um, to get things first. You know, my competition was Electrifying Mojo, <laughs> so he had access to everything. So I had to um, to really go far. You know, competition is such a great thing because it makes everybody better. You know, it pushes you in a in a way that you may not have been pushed 
when you do have that competition there. Yeah, it was well. It was either that or, or, or I, you know, get get fired. I, I think <laughs> if, if I didn't get the ratings, and uh, yeah, I mean, I had to I had to learn how to edit tape in one afternoon. Really? Yeah, enough that the radio station could. So it had to be perfect. So I had to learn that in like a few hours, so that uh, they could uh, create and play these master mixes mm-hmm. of of certain tracks that they had did a deal with the label that they could make a special mix, and I was the one to to do that. So. Um, so I had to, you know, learn things like that and learn how to, uh, uh, you know, radio production and yeah. uh, all types of things. So you were, you were on the, for- you were in a position that not a lot of people are in that you were on the forefront of a new musical genre for techno. Not many people can walk around and say that they were there when something started that has grown and has a life now and has a history and now is known all over the world. When you started, um, let's go to the Underground Resistance, for instance. Did you have any idea what you were doing at that time when you guys were together that you'd be talking about this now, performing all the time, all over the world? Did you have any sense of it at that time? Um, no, not not in the early stages of, of UR. I mean, we... Uh, did not travel. We uh, just stayed home and produced music. And we would only hear about, uh, you know, from other people, from people like Joey. Joey Beltram called us. We didn't know who Joey was at the time, but some, <laughs> some guy from New York with a really heavy New York accent asked, uh, you know, if this was underground resistance and, hey, I'm playing your record and in front of 11,000 people and things like that. And uh, Apex Twin, Richard, you know, I remember we, we, we had early contact with him, but we, we didn't know who he, you know, we we really didn't know until I got an invitation to go to Europe for the first time, and uh, and it was kind of a fact-finding mission. So we, we we just we just produced music and created a label based off of what we thought you know might work, and uh, we looked at all the mistakes that other guys had made, <laughs> and kind of crossed those off on the list, and 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 uh, made a new list, and uh, kept our fingers crossed and hoped uh, you know they would turn out okay. That being said, the underground resistance was music, but it was an attitude and it was a feeling and it was a it was bigger than that, I think, in Detroit. But when you stepped across the water and you got to Europe and you saw the reaction to what you guys had been doing, what did that feel like? Because you didn't did you have a sense that techno was taking over over there and that what you guys had been doing here was becoming, you know, let's face it. You know, we've said it for a long time that techno music has been respected around the world more than it is in the United States. Uh, I don't know if that's the case now, but for a while that certainly was the case. Did you sense that there was um, this excitement about what you were doing over there the way you might not have felt it here? Um, well, at, at that time, I mean, you're talking around 1990, you mm-hmm. know, going into 91, I think. Yeah. Um, techno at that time were just in a few countries. France, for instance, France really, in 91, really didn't have anything. I mean, there was just maybe one or two events that happened. Um, most clubs were not were not playing the music at the time. Uh, Spain was, uh, you know, hardly anything. Portugal, you know, except for a few British guys going there to play. But um, and so Europe really was not uh, anywhere near what what it is now. It was really just uh, Belgium, Holland, you know, the UK, um, Scandinavia really wasn't much. Um, Switzerland was just really starting. 
Austria was, you know, one or two. So um, it was it was really in transition. And um, well, I mean, in my case, I was a very skilled DJ. Not not, not only being very skillful and, and technically, you know, uh, able, but we were making the music that we that or I was making the music that I knew I could make fit no matter whatever the circumstances were. So. I was prepared, you know, the first time that I went to play, and uh, my objective was to, you know, get, to get a result. And it was euphoric. The kids at the time all felt that something new was happening. Then this person from this city is, you know, bringing this sound, and uh, and they should listen to it, and they should, uh, you know, be more uh, patient and to, you know, let the DJ do what he does from wherever he's from. And um, what I discovered was that you know, about half the audience or half the, the people really didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> um, the music was, I thought at the time, a bit too complex for the uh, mentality of, of Berliners, I guess. Most were most of the audience were from industrial punk, new wave type of uh, background. And so um, uh, at the time, you know, there was still a lot of hip hop you know, technical things, you know, you know, the structure of the music, Detroit music at that time, and what a DJ could do with turntables was, I thought, a bit more than what they, you know, could really deal with. And um, so it took a little time. It took a, a little while. It took it took about 10 years mm-hmm. for them to for it to really set in that, you know, this music is, you know, can be theirs and, and it can it can a culture could, could grow out of it. It took it took about about a decade, I think. Um, I had moved to Berlin in 94, and then again in 1997, and then stayed there, you know. Uh, so I was, I was there, um, my, my pr- the first time I went was 1988 or 89 or something, and then, you know, just before the wall went down, and then one month after the wall. Uh, oh, wow. You know, and so I was, I was there and kind of watched the entire thing happen and um what an exciting time of history for you to be there yeah yeah it was um a, you know unique time to see how you know yeah do you approach your music differently than you did back then your philosophy about how you go about creating yeah yeah it's it's quite it's quite different i mean then i kind of reacted to how i felt at that moment in order to, you know to produce the music now, you know, there has to be a reason for me to go into the studio. Otherwise, I would prefer to do something else. And, um, and so, you know, the reason sometimes requires a lot of uh, research mm-hmm. and a lot, a lot of discussion, a lot of uh, time to think about it and how I'm going to uh, tra- translate this with sound, studying other people's work, studying, uh, you know, other, other genres of music, studying classical, studying certain, you know, composers and things like that. And... Um, Trying to find a, a way uh, to to um, kind of find my niche in that on that subject. Well, to that point, um, you've now gone into putting visual elements to music, and that is nothing you were doing necessarily when you started. So that is different, um, especially with the silent films. I found that to be fascinating. In that, um, in an interview I listened to. Is it true that you memorize these films? Mm-hmm. They're in yeah. your they're in your mind's eye when you're creating the music for yeah. it. Yeah, that, that's right. How do you decide what films you want to put your music to? 
Uh, well, I mean, some some of the films that that I've worked on uh, were, were commissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first the first few were commissioned um, by the um, Cinémathèque Française mm-hmm. in Paris, and um, they they had heard that I had an interest, and they were doing some film cycles of say Fritz Lang and and um, Cecil B. DeMille and things like that, and and they 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 kind of just tossed me a film and. Uh, asked me if I could just create a new score for it. And, and you know, there was really no instructions of, of how to do it. They just thought that maybe I could play records to it and, and that would be good enough. Um, but I, I came up with an idea. I thought maybe it would be better if I can compose the music for, um, you know, for the film. Um, that I can tailor make it based off what I see and, uh, and things like that. And so, um, yeah, th- that's how it started. I think it was... Uh, with the um, the Cinematheque, it was "Woman in the Moon" by by Fritz, Fritz Lang, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, and 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 over time, they were throwing hard, you know more complex, harder films. <laughs> so I think that the 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 most complex, the longest one was um, uh, "October" by Sergei Eisenstein. How long was that? It's about three hours, a little bit over three hours. And, you know, it's a film about the Russian Revolution, the whole thing. So after the revolution, Eisenstein went in with his crew and they filmed all the locations. And, and uh, it took about um, eight months to compose the full soundtrack, maybe 400 compositions. And then I think it took about uh, 180 to, to actually do the Cinemix. That sounds daunting. And uh, it, it, it takes about, to do a Cinemix, if, if the film is, like I just did, the last one I just did was, uh, was Metropolis, mm-hmm. which is another very long film, about, about three hours. That, that one took a long time. It took uh, almost, almost a year. I got an invitation from, from UFA to do it uh, in, in Berlin uh, for their uh, film night, which is, which is a big deal yeah. uh, for UFA. And um, it took almost a year to compose that soundtrack. And I think I only ended up using something like uh, 80-something tracks, but I produced close to like 300. So when it would come time to start writing for this, what was the, the methodology for uh, attacking such a big work? Actually, the first thing I, I do, especially if the film is, you know, like you know, Fritz Lang, you know, I do research about, about when the film was made and the context and the time that it was made. Try to understand why the film was written. Right. Uh, and by who and what those circumstances. So I do research about the about the director and the writer first. If I really go into detail, I then begin to look at what was happening during the time. So news clips and, and newspapers and all types of things to get a a sense of of why this director thought this film would be important to people at that time. And this is what I did with, with Metropolis. Um, and then I, I studied um, the life of Fritz Lang and then his wife. And uh, how he was kind of censored and by the by the Third Reich and you know Hitler and everything and the boundaries of what he could and could not do and uh, and and the whole and all that and then and then I begin to sit down to write sketches, looking at the film a, a few times and then going back to the studio without without looking at the film to see if I can kind of get a sense as to the mood of, of each segment. And then in time, you know, after memorizing the film, I can then begin to write based off of, off of memory. And then once I have enough material, then I can begin to match these tracks up with the scenes and then compose some more to fill in the gaps and then begin to edit and modify the, 
tracks to fit exactly the part that I want in the film. And then I um, uh, kind of rehearse it uh, about four or five times. So sit there and watch the film from beginning to end to match the music up to see if everything falls in exactly where it should be. And then, uh, yeah, and then, and, then, and then it just plays out. And I, you know, I, I leave um, myself some room for flexibility if I want to do things uh, in real time. And, um, yeah, so it's a, it's a lot of work. I don't recommend it for, um, <laughs> but um, so far I think I must have done uh, 15, 15 films. It's got to be such a sense of accomplishment. And I'm sure that with every film you learn something new about how to... Yeah, to go about it the next time. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the most profound experience was um, it was it was a film about Paris, Etudes um, à Paris, and it's a study of Paris. And I had did, I had did the Cinemix for the Paris Film Festival. It was a commission, and they asked me to do this to rescore this film. Uh, and I was in the process of moving to Paris uh, while I was while I was doing it. To do this soundtrack, I had to study, uh, you know, through this film, I was studying the city, you know. Uh, the film was made in 1930s, but I had memorized the film so much that, that when I moved to Paris, I knew exactly what things were still there in place, even advertisements and all types of signs and, you know, architecture and all, all types of things that were, were still there, you know. Right. And uh, so, so you really learn a lot. And, and you learn a lot in that film from French people, how they you know, what their history is right. and uh, things like that. So, You know, what's interesting about your career is that um, with that and with, you know, your work as a DJ and, and uh, the underground resistance is in these cases, there were no playbooks for you. It wasn't like you could go and do the, go on the internet and say, <laughs> how do you, how do you do, how do you do these things? Right. There was no internet clearly when you, when you started as a DJ, but it's so fascinating that through your life, you have you know, been on the precipice of new what new things, new ways to do things that people haven't done, and now you could actually be the person to write the playbook if anybody. Well, you, I mean, I think after a while you you gain a sense. Yeah. Um, when something is special and it needs a bit more attention, and you yeah, over time you just you just uh, you learn how to keep your ears and eyes open. Uh, for certain people saying and doing certain things, you know, I, I don't think it's anything you know new or special. But well, you know, I like to, I like to do research. Yeah, um, I like I like history, mm-hmm. just just in general, and topics of, about the future. Coming up in part two of my interview with Jeff Mills, he talks about his first experience working with classical musicians as a techno artist. Celebrate 75 years of public radio in Detroit with WDET. As our spring fundraiser commences, let's unite to support what makes Detroit unique. 75 years of people-powered radio. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. Ian Delisi, and here's part two and the conclusion of my conversation with Jeff Mills. Is there anything on your list of these are the things Jeff Mills wants to tackle at some point in time musically um, that you haven't had time to do yet? Well, I mean, I would love to score 2001 Space Odyssey. Really? You know, but they're, yeah, they're very difficult. The The, the widow of Kubrick is, is not easy. Um, <laughs> right. So, so um, you've tried. We, I, we, we've asked, yeah. And, um, uh, I've done a few unpublished cinemixes, you know, but um, you know, right now we're, I'm really interested in cinema 
yeah. creating a different type of visual experience. Not not a not a motion picture, mm -hmm. but something using a visual for the same thing you get when you go to a party and you dance. That type of sensation, but it's it's different. And so uh, th these are the things that I'm kind of working on now. What's the biggest misconception about techno music? Well, there are a few, <laughs> um, but but I think um, you know the most um, annoying one, I guess, is is that there are more uh, that there aren't any more new ideas uh, to be explored in it, and that the DJs that are active today have pushed the envelope to the point that well, you know, you know, it's not much more that can, can be done because I think, and and I have to say truthfully, I, I think that. There are a lack of, of new ideas in this genre, but that, I believe, is, you know, the fault of, of people just not taking the time to explore the genre and the, and the art form enough, you know. There's plenty of reason to try new ideas, but I just think that it's become accepted to get away with not doing very much, and uh, that, you know, is considered a good thing. I think we have too much of that. In our industry, we don't press artists to be better. We just accept what they, what they do, but we don't, we don't really probe to find out more about the person behind the music, you know, to know whether we even align ourselves with his ideas of the reasons why he's making the music. Mm -hmm. We just dance to it. And if it makes us dance, that's good enough. So there, there are reasons. I think there's, you know, there's, there's plenty of reasons, the reason why it is. But from my point of view, there is a endless ocean, you know, of ideas just waiting to be explored from, you know, the nine planets to the universe to uh, psychological uh, aspects to science to, uh, yeah, I mean, everything around us, you know, uh, yeah. You are working, and I bring this up again because both of you were creators of a certain genre, Afrobeat. Um, for Tony Allen and techno music for you, and you two innovators get together. How did this collaboration come to be? Well, um, I was I was in Paris, and and my agent at the time um, uh, asked me if I if I was interested in going by the studio where Tony Allen is. Um, he 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 booked the studio out studio out for like a month. And he was inviting musicians to come in to collaborate with. I, I said, yeah, you know, I would, I would, I would love to go. I, I don't know what we would do, you know. I mean, I, you know, um, but, you know, I'm always open for, for anything new. So I said, yeah, and, and, and went there and, and met him. And we, we talked at first. I asked him all the questions, the questions that I wanted to ask him <laughs> out front at first, uh, you know, about, you know, Filakuti and the whole, you right. know, Lagos, the thing in Lagos. And, and um, you know, and... Uh, he kindly answered those, right. those questions, and then we got down to making making music, and it it, it it was just to see if we could, you know, come together on you know on certain certain links and common you know, I, you know ideas. And um, where was the commonality for you guys at first? Well, first I had to explain to him that I had kind of developed a new way of of playing these machines. I thought about it, and I thought that there's no way that I can really be so expressive if we're tied together by sync or by oh, okay. a computer or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I showed him what I can do with this machine. And I told him, you know, because because if I can do this, then that means that I can get closer to you and the way that you play a drum kit. Um, and so when I began to do that and we began to, we get, we began to play together, that we automatically noticed that 
you know, it's kind of limitless as to what we can do. Really, in the end, we're just two musicians just playing together. And then, yeah, the conversation changed then at, at that time. You know, it shifted to, you know, a much more open and free and and uh, let's, let's explore and let's, uh, yeah, so that, that's really how it started. It's like free jazz. Do you like working that way? Yeah, yeah, I love, um, yeah, I've, I've worked with many artists, uh, uh, classical musicians, classical pianists, jazz artists in the same way. I've worked with celloists uh, also in, in the same manner where we just have a conversation about the concept of the performance and then how you get there is how you get there. Maybe I'll do something at the very beginning, but then after that, we just don't know. Your uh, history as a DJ would not demand that you collaborate with people playing instruments necessarily at first. And so now you're in that world, clearly comfortable in that world. What did that feel like the first time you were sort of reacting to a person, another person playing an instrument, Um, the human element of it? Well, I used to be be a drummer before— I used to try to play the drums <laughs> before I was I was a DJ. So right. and I and I was interested in um, fusion jazz mm-hmm. and and fusion rock, classic jazz, and things like that. And um, and so I became a DJ thinking like a musician. I never kind of made that full. I never made that full transition into being the DJ. I, I think more like a musician. So I, I'm only interested in manipulating the turntables to be more like a drummer. So that that's how I got into hip hop uh, and all that and uh, scratching and all those things because it was it was more physical and it reminded me of playing playing drums. So, yeah, it's it's very easy. I mean, I can speak the same language as a musician, right? And it doesn't take very long to know how we're going to be able to find that common link. And um, I think once once I show them what I can do, then they then they feel much better. Mm-hmm. Working with classical musicians is a little bit different because, um, well, it's just different right? <laughs> because they're different. They're, they're different animals. So you, you It uh, is different. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because I've had to interview classical musicians before and, um, and people that have had to perform with them and getting them out of the, the rigidity of the approach to classical music can be a challenge for right. the collaborator and for them. Yeah. Yeah, there were there were a lot of aspects that I had to understand, mm-hmm. and I have a very good friend who's a conductor. He sat me down and explained to me what an orchestra is, what they can and what they can, what they will and what they will not do, oh, wow. and how they think in the orchestra and just on, in their normal everyday lives, <laughs> and 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 how they grew up. I mean, if they started playing an instrument at three, and they've trained since three to master the instrument and to master the piece. So their objective is to play the piece as close to the original intention of the composer. After that, that that's it. And the audience really isn't really a, the, the factor. Mm-hmm. They don't, I shouldn't say that they don't care about the audience, but their focus is just playing that part as perfectly as possible. And, and as, you know, as it being, being a DJ. The audience is everything. Yeah, the audience is everything. I had to learn their way, basically, mm-hmm. in order to be able to work with them. And... Uh, and to understand how to write a score. To date, I think I've, I've written four classical, four classical scores. You know, you kind of have to think, think like them to mm-hmm. know how to get the best out of a body of musicians, a body of 80 musicians, you know. And, and then it, it became an asset for me to, to put myself, I can put myself in the audience to know what the audience 
would want to have every, say, three minutes. Um, and then when I sat down with or when I sit down with the Rangers, I can, uh, you know, so I, I really kind of have the best of both uh, in, in you know, working with the orchestra. So. How does it feel to hear your music played in that way with all of these musicians? There is a, there is a power to a symphony orchestra, that sonic experience. Yeah. And when you get to hear what you wrote played by them what did that do you remember what that felt like the first time you heard your music played by an orchestra yeah it was it was um maybe not what you one would would expect yeah i i felt a, a sense that i lost something really um that my music had been taken away by 80 musicians oh yeah right and that um the people listening to it are listening to to them not not necessarily to me and that it has gone on and can be something else so at first, I, I, I felt it felt kind of strange to, um, you know, right to, see, t- to sort of give it away. Yeah, I mean, way. to see a sixty-year-old, you know, sixty-five-year-old <laughs> guy with gray hair, you know, playing playing the bells, you know, uh, which is something that I had always, right. uh, you know, seen that it was really kept, you know, it was, but um, but then then I began to understand that actually, you know, they're, they're actually giving these compositions a different life. And that um, they are presenting it in a way uh, and in a form that has lasted for, you know, centuries. Mm-hmm. And that it's, it's really a, a very special moment because it now um, has the possibility to be considered hundreds of years from now, you know, or as long as classical uh, you know, arrangements and, yeah. So, but now, I mean, after after working so much with the orchestras, I have a better sense of how or what they could do, or how they could help electronic music for one thing, but but how orchestras could be used in order to be able to evolve from this classical, you know, um, form that I, I I can I can I'm beginning to to see the 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 opportunities of of making them do a certain thing or making them play a certain way. That would appeal to someone that isn't interested in classical music, but uh, might find that quite quite interesting. And so I, I just I'm, uh, a piece that I wrote last year is being arranged now for performance um, in a in a in a few months, uh, and it, it's about being lost in space. And so um, uh, so I'm making the orchestra do very strange things uh, because because of the of this. So. Do you need to develop a certain amount of trust with them? I mean, do, do they need to sort of trust you, or will they just do whatever's on that page, or you just hand it over and they're just—that's what they do. No, it's 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 like a machine. Yeah, really. I mean, I mean, not not to not no to, no. Uh, I know what you're saying, but you no yeah, yeah. you hand it over and it. It's there. It is you. It's like inserting a ticket into a, <laughs> a, a parking machine, and and they, you know, they are trained to play perfectly. Right. Exactly what the arranger wrote. It is exactly you know what I said. What I'm telling the arranger to write, and and all these type of, and yeah, I mean, and you know, our, our rehearsals are just getting the precision together. They are studying it months in advance, so by the first rehearsal, they. They're ready. They're, they're ready. Yeah, I don't have any conversations with the musicians. Well, very, very few. Right. I mean, maybe the daughter of right. Uh, the you know the violinist you know right, right. is someone that came to my party and she wants to 
say hello. <laughs> so I, I get a lot of that. And uh, um, to, to take a picture with, you know, someone because they want to show their daughter or son. But other, other than that, you, you, have, no, you have no contact. Isn't and uh, I can't speak to the principal violinist. Well, I can, but you're not supposed to it's because a, it's, it's really like a – Yeah. It's a, there's some protocols in place. Syndicate, yeah, <laughs> is a better word. So I can I can speak to the conduct I can speak to the, the conductor, conductor or the arranger, and then the conductor or arranger then speaks to the appropriate person, and then they, that goes back to me. So if I have an idea during a rehearsal, I have to wait for the break and then say, "Listen, can the uh, tuba uh, play more passionately?" And then thirty minutes after, then he'll the conductor will very kindly say to the tuba, "Can you play more passionately?" Wow, and you know, that's it's a different world. Yeah, you it's can't. It's a totally you can't, different uh, world. It's totally different. So totally you, different world for so you. It's, oh um, my gosh. It, it's easier if they can find a way to take you seriously. And the first few performances were not nice. Well, no, they were nice experiences. But, you know, you have a, a body of musicians that I, I wouldn't say despise or hate techno or electronic music, but they certainly don't like it that much. And they don't care for it. And they don't think it's serious. And they don't, you know... So the first few performances were, were really just, you know, you know, letting them know that the music that you have on your, on your, on your, um, on your, stand. On your, on your stand is what I wrote. It's, it didn't exist before I wrote it. Right. So I've become accustomed to now speaking to the orchestra before our rehearsals and tell them exactly what they have in front of them and why they have it and what it means and, and why I'm here basically, and, and what I'm doing over there with all this stuff. It's not often that the, an orchestra has the composer explain things to them. So it's, it's, it's kind, of, kind of rare to, for them to do that. So it, it, it wasn't easy. Um, it doesn't sound and, and it's like not, it was not, easy. Uh, it's not so easy in time if you, do, you, know, if you, if you work more with orchestras and they, right. they know a little bit of who you are. Right. So you know, I've worked with you know, orchestras in London and things like that. So they, you know, you... you He's not going to hurt you, you know. The music's not going to be too loud, uh, you know. Wind, you know, sound screens are yeah. everywhere in the orchestra pit, and and um, once they uh, get get used to working with you, and they know that you know your objective is to create something special, right? Um, some of them, not all of them, s- some of them are happy. 